morning, but you're certainly welcome to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 5, um, but most of the scripture, if not all, will be up on the screen this morning. So again, you can turn to 1 Samuel chapter 5, um, but most of it will be up on the screen this morning. So as we approach 1 Samuel chapter 5 through 6, it's important to remember that we are in the middle of a narrative. Last uh, Sunday evening, we took a look at the chapter before this um, passage at 1 Samuel chapter 4, and often this, uh, this uh, story, this narrative is entitled, The Journey of the Ark of the Covenant. So we're going to kind of pick up from where we left off last Sunday evening at 1 Samuel chapter 5, and we're going to move our way um, through this story. But just to review what chapter 4 uh, of 1 Samuel looked like, we saw that the Israelites were in battle with the Philistines. They were defeated once, and they questioned why had the Lord defeated them. Their solution was that they were going to bring the ark of the Lord up to the battle, and in their minds, this was securing the notion that God was going up with them and that he would give them victory. We saw that uh, this gives Israel a confidence, and then their enemies who they're facing, the Philistines, it calls fear at first. But ultimately, the Philistines, they raised up in courage, and they defeated the Israelites. The first battle Israel lost, they lost 4,000 men. The second battle, in which they brought the Ark of the Covenant with them, they lost 30,000. There was no regathering of the army. The priests, Hophni and Phinehas, were killed. And the Ark of the Covenant, the item that was supposed to bring them victory, was captured by the Philistines. Why had they lost? We saw last week that it was because Israel was in sin, causing God not to fight for them, rather to give them into the hands of the Philistines, as we see he often did in that time period, the time period of the judges. The Israelites failed to repent and confess their sin. They failed to look to the Lord, so they were defeated and lost the battle to the Philistines. So as we come off 1 Samuel chapter 4, we kind of leave it on a cliffhanger. We're not sure what's happened, and we can, many questions may come to mind. For example, what will happen to Israel? What will happen to the priesthood with Eli and his sons dead? Will the Philistines attack again? What will happen to the Ark of the Covenant, and will God stay silent? As we come to 1 Samuel 5 through 6, we will see that certainly God does not stay silent. Rather, we see he displays his greatness through the Ark of the Covenant, through the agency of the Ark of the Covenant uh, in the land of the Philistines. So as we move through, that, through this story, we will pay attention, to, pay attention to how God displays his greatness through the agency of the Ark of the Covenant and also the responses of the Philistines and the Israelites to him. So specifically, we're going to be looking out for four displays of this greatness that God displays. But before we get, get to the first one, we need to look at the context in which the chapter sets forth. So 1 Samuel 5 begins, When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. So we find out what happens to the ark. We're told that's captured in 1 Samuel 4, but now in chapter 5, we are told where it goes. We're told it goes to the land of the Philistines. And if we looked at 1 Samuel chapter 4 as we did last week, we would see the ark has a central role within that chapter, within that story, as we see it's mentioned 12 times. The ark is what the Israelites believe will bring victory. The news of the ark of the Philistines 
is what causes them to be panic, a panicked mess before the second battle. We see that the message of the Ark of the Covenant being captured causes Eli to break his neck, to fall over backward and break his neck. And also we see that his daughter-in-law, it causes her to give birth prematurely and to name her son Ichabod, meaning the glory has departed from Israel, for the Ark of God has been captured. So as we come to chapters 5 and 6, they are no different. We see that the ark is central, and it's mentioned actually double the amount of times as chapter 4. But this time we see it through the view in the lens of the ark of the covenant in the land of the Philistines. They take it from the battlefield in Ebenezer and bring it to one of the cities, one of the cities of five of the Philistines, Ashdod. So the first display of God's greatness is, his, is in his triumph over the god of the Philistines, Dagon. And this we see in 1 Samuel chapter 5, verses 2 through 5. The Ark of the Covenant is placed within the temple of Dagon. We see this from 1 Samuel 5, 2, which says, Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. So we see they bring it to their land and immediately they place it in the temple of their god. And putting the ark in Dagon's temple indicates to us several things. First, this indicates that the Philistines saw themselves as victorious. This is not a unique practice of the Philistines, but we see in ancient civilizations, this was a common thing to do. When you captured the idols or captured items of other gods, of your enemy, you would place it in the temple, and ultimately that meant you were given victory. You were victorious and you have conquered this enemy. Second, this indicates that they were honoring and crediting Dagon for the defeat for the Israelites. So they were giving the honor and the credit to their God for this victory. And this isn't the first time we've seen this uh, in the Bible uh, with credit given to this God, Dagon, as we see this in the person of Samson, the judge. Judges 16, 23 through 24 says, Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. So we see kind of the same dynamic as we saw with Samson. Samson's captured, and they give the credit, the honor, the glory to their God, Dagon. And we see the same thing happens here with the Ark of the Covenant. And then third, this indicates that the Philistines were not only setting the ark up as a sort of trophy for their recent victory, but they viewed this defeated and capture, captured as a visible sign that Dagon was far superior to the Israelite god, Yahweh. So not only were they given the credit for the victory to their god, but they saw him as support, superior over Israel's god. And we see the story moves forward. The first night that the, Lord, uh, the covenant of the Lord, the, co the Ark of the Covenant, is in Dagon's temple. We see the first night the Lord makes Dagon fall face down in a position of adoration before the Ark. 1 Samuel 5.3, it says, And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. So we see the Philistines wake, at, they wake up after a marvelous de defeat, on the battlefield the day prior to see their god, Dagon, face downward in a, in a position uh, that symbolized reverence and submission before the Ark of the Lord. 
The Philistines have to pick up and place their god Dagon back where he stood, showing the foolishness of their worship of him. The god who just defeated the, power, the powerful god of the Israelites could not pick himself up. We are not told the Philistines' thoughts. Maybe it bothered them, but it seems as if, from, as I look at it, um, that this didn't really bother them at all. They just pick up their idol and place it back where it stood, Maybe they just left it off as a coincidence, thinking maybe someone knocked it over, maybe the wind blew, it, blew in, maybe it was partially off its stand in the first place. We see the second night. The story continues. The second night, the Lord makes Dagon fall face down again, but this time slices off his head and hand, showing defeat. 1 Samuel 5.4, it says, But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Now realize the ramifications of this happening, of this event happening. The Philistines had just defeated the Israelites. And as I said, in their mind, they, give the, they gave the victory to their god, Dagon. He gave them victory ultimately, so they took the conquered enemy's item that represented their god and they placed it in his temple. But here something shocking happens in that their god, who just defeated the Israelites' god, falls down in the middle of the night. Then the second night, we see he falls down in the middle of the night, but this time his head and his hands are cut off they were probably wondering, how could this be? Dagon, the god who just defeated the most powerful god, how could this happen to him? We see this is no longer a battle between the Israelites and the Philistines, as we saw in chapter 4, but we see this as a battle between the two gods of the Philistines and of the Israelites. The Israelites' god, the captured god on the battlefield, and Dagon, the victorious god of the Philistines. And we see God... Israel's God has just displayed his greatness and his superiority over Dagon by performing a symbol of military defeat. As often in ancient civilizations, they'd cut off the head and the hands of their enemy after they uh, defeated them. In two nights, we see the tables are turned. God is showing that in no way, shape, or form as Dagon allowed the Philistines to capture his ark. But we see that... <clears throat> In no way, shape, or form has Dagon allowed the Philistines to capture the ark and his, him or his ark, nor had they gotten victory through their own doing or their God's power, but only because God had given the ark into their hands. So not only is this event remembered, as we can see in the, in the scriptures, by the Israelites, but the Philistines continually acknowledge it as well. As we see in 1 Samuel 5, 5, this is why the priest of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. So the Philistines to that very day that 1 Samuel uh, was written continued not to step on the threshold, which separated the common from the holy place of the temple, for their God had touched it. So thus they continually relived the humiliation that their God uh, had gotten uh, from the defeat and the display of the greatness of Israel's God. So lessons from the first display of God's greatness shown in his triumph over Dagon. First, we can learn that God is the only true and living God, and that he is far more superior than any other living thing. 
And even as we think about in our lives today, uh, God expects that he will be the only thing we honor and praise. In response to this, we must honor God and God only, not submitting to any other religion or God and serving God with our whole devotion. And then second, we can learn that God can do anything in keeping with his character to make his glory known. So even in our lives today and in the world today, God works in different ways to make his glory known. Ways that may be unexpected to us, ways that may not even be understandable to us, but we need to submit to his ways rather than questioning them. The second display of God's greatness is in his, his direct interactions with the Philistines. And we see this from 1 Samuel chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. And as I mentioned before, uh, a little earlier, I mentioned that the Philistines, their country was made up of five cities. And these five cities, known as a Pentopolis, uh, these five cities were ruled by a lord or a king. And we are in, in the remaining story, we're going to see how the Ark of the Covenant is bounced from city to city um, as we see uh, God displaying his greatness. So first, we see the hand of the Lord was against the people of Ashdod. So this is the first city we come into contact with, and this is from 1 Samuel 5, 6 through 7. We see the Lord caused them to be astonished and plagued with tumors, 1 Samuel 5, 6. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territories. So we may wonder, what were these tumors? We're not given too much, and in the scriptures we don't see too much of these uh, these tumors mentioned, but first we can see that ultimately they were from the Lord. We're told that they are a plague from the Lord given to the Philistines. But as we look at this word, we see that it's ultimately a growth or a swelling on different parts of the body. The literal meaning of the Hebrew word means a hill or a mound, speaking of a hill-shaped growth on the body. And if we look later on in chapter 6, we would see that this disease was brought about by rats, as we can see from 1 Samuel 6, 4. And then we get the response of Ashdod was to send the ark, send off the ark. 1 Samuel 5, 7, and when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So take notice that not only do they acknowledge that God is against them, but he is against their God, Dagon, as well. Second, the hand of the Lord was against the people of Gath, 1 Samuel 5, 8-9. We see the ark is sent to Gath in 1 Samuel 5, 8, as it says, So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of, God, of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of God of Israel there. So the ark takes its next stop in Gath. And we may wonder why... Uh, they're sending it to another Philistine city, city and not sending it away uh, to another country. And I think possibly we could see, um, as no reason is given, we could infer that possibly uh, it's given to Gath to see if this is just a coincidence or if really these plagues, these afflictions are caused by the Ark of the Covenant being there. We see that similar effects take place in Gath. Not only are the people astonished and horrified, but the Lord threw them into a great commotion, as we can see from 1 Samuel 5, 9. It says, But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. 
And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So we see a very great panic was caused, and then we see the citizens of Gath of all ages are affected by the tumors. As we can see in 1 Samuel 5, 9, it says, But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So we see again, the hand of the Lord is against a second city of the Philistines, and tumors are given to them. And then third, the hand of the Lord was against the people of Ekron. We see this from 1 Samuel 5, 10 through 12. And we see Ekron's a little bit different in that immediately, as the Ark of the Covenant comes to Ekron, we see they reject the Ark due to the past events of Ashdod and Gath. From 1 Samuel 5.10, it says, So they sent the ark of God to Ekron, but as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. So we see they reject it, and then as they did, as the Philistines did previously, they call the lords of the Philistines. As we see in verse 11, it says, They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel. And let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a, very, was a deathly panic throughout the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And then we see the hand of the Lord was still against Ekron in the short period of time. Verses 11 through 12, it says, They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel, and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic through the, throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. So we see uh, the journey of the ark before us in 1 Samuel 5 resembles a victory tour. So if we think uh, back to ancient civilizations, often they would go through the cities on a victory tour after a victory, displaying their plunder, displaying their treasures, their enemies that they've captured. And we see, in a sense, the Ark of the Covenant's doing exactly that, but it's not displaying the greatness of the Philistines. But here we see the Ark of the Covenant is making a victory tour through the Philistines' land, showing the greatness of God. Also, we can see a contrast between the cut-off and powerless hands of Dagon to the repeated uh, emphasis and wording of the heavy and the hard hands of Yahweh. So up on the screen, you see a map just displaying the travels of uh, the Ark of the Covenant through the land of the Philistines. So lessons that can be learned from God's greatness on display in his, reaction, in his interactions with the Philistines. First, we may ask, how could the Lord strike these innocent cities with affliction and cause these cities such chaos when many of them had not even been directly involved in the war and capture the ark? And I think we can answer this by simply saying that it's important to realize that these people were not people that followed God's laws and commandments. They directly disobeyed him and so deserved his wrath. They ultimately weren't innocent, but they were guilty for not following the ways of the Lord and being guilty of sin. And then second, God displays his greatness even in the lives of unbelievers. And this can be seen as we think about the New Testament. Romans 1 says that they are without excuse, for they are surrounded by his mighty acts 
as for one create for one creation, but as we see in this passage, he even works within their lives. So we have seen the ark of the Lord be bounced around from city to city, and God manifesting his glory after being the trophy of the Philistines. Now we see it's unwanted, and here we see, here we get the Philistines' response to the, to the display of God's power that they have just experienced. So now we get the third display of God's greatness. The third display of God's greatness is in his working through the response of the Philistines. And we see this from 1 Samuel 6, 1 through 12. So after seven months of dealing with the ark and its repercussions, the Philistines seek an outlet to get rid of this, to, to get rid of it. And we see this from 1 Samuel 6, 1 through 2, as it says, The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send to its place. So we see the Philistines have made up their mind to, to send off the ark, but they go to the religious authorities to help them to know how to ultimately send it back so that they wouldn't uh, get the wrath of God as they have already seen, so that they wouldn't get more affliction. So the Philistines are instructed by these religious authorities on sending the ark back with the specifics of what was to be sent with the ark, how the ark was to be sent back, and why was the ark to be sent back. So first we see what was to be sent with the ark. 1 Samuel 6, 3-5, it says, They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed. And it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guild offering that, he, that we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must, not make, so you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. So we see what they should send back, what they need to send back with the ark, is a guilt offering of five tumors and five mice, all being gold. They should that's what they should return to the land of Israel. We see along with this instructing them on what to bring to the priests, the priests warn them regarding what a similar event in Israel's history. As 1 Samuel 6.6 6 says, Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? So if you hadn't thought about it already, this would remind us that this isn't the first time that God had acted in such a way in uh, enemy territory or enemy land of the people of Israel. As we think of the Egyptians with all the plagues that they got from the hand of God, the priests warn the people of the Philistines that they should not harden their hearts like the Egyptians and like Pharaoh did. So second, we see how the ark was to be sent back. We see the Philistines were to send it off on a cart, and we're given several instructions here from the, the priests of the Philistines. So first we see the priests, the Philistines, were to send it off on a new cart. 1 Samuel 6, 7. Now then, take and prepare a new cart. Then we see the Philistines were to use two milk cows to pull the new cart. 1 Samuel 6, 7. Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows. 
Third, the Philistines were to use cows that had never been worked. And we see this in 1 Samuel 6, 7. Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart. Fourth, we see the Philistines were to use cows that had calves, but the but take the calves away from them. 1 Samuel 6, 7. Now then take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And lastly, the last instruction that the Philistines are given is that the Philistines were to place the ark in the box with the offerings on the cart and send it off. As we see from verse 8, it says, and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put in in a box at its side, and the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way. So that's how they are to send off the ark. They're to send with it all these things, uh, to transport it and to be with it. And then third, we see why the ark was to be sent back. 1 Samuel 6, 9, it says, and this is the priest still talking to the Philistines. It says, And watch, if it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. So we see with all this happening, the Philistines still think there's a possibility that's coincidence. That the humiliation of their idol, Dagon, and the affliction that they endured, from the hand of God, they think still could be chance, that it could be coincidence. So they set forth this test. And we see for the Ark of Yahweh or for the Ark of the Covenant to end up in Beth Shemesh, it would have had to be a work of God for several reasons. First, the cart itself has not, was not the best way to transport. As we see later in 2 Samuel, a cart is used to transport the ark, and it topples as Uzzah reaches out to steady it. So we see that it wasn't even the best way to transport it. Second, these unyoked or unworked cows were never trained to do, to do such a thing, so for two of them to work together and make it such a long distance was nearly impossible. Thirdly, these cows had just calved, so their natural impulse would be to go to be with their calves, not in the direction of Beth Shemesh. And then fourth and lastly, this was a near impossible task for the cows were not to be directed or steered, but were walking whatever way they wanted to make it miles to Beth Shemesh. Would be a far distance to make while being undirected. So we see simply that the Philistines are setting forth a test. They're to do all these things, put it on a cart, give it, have it be led by these cows that were unyoked. For the reason to see if this was truly God, it would end up in Beth Shemesh. But we see that if they were to end up in Beth Shemesh, it had to be a work of God. The Philistines carry out the commands of the priests, as we see in verses 10 through 11. It says, The men did so and took the two cow, milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart in the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And we see the cows go right to the land of the Ark of the Covenant. 1 Samuel 6, 12. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. So we see surely the cows end up in Beth Shemesh. They go directly towards it, not going to the right or to the left. And they make it along with the Ark of the Covenant. And we see that the lords of the Philistines see it all. 
So lesson. Often, often things are labeled as coincidence or people pass them off as chance when the Lord is ultimately the one in control of all things and at work behind them. We get the fourth display. The fourth and the last display of God's greatness is in his response to the sin of the Israelites. And we, see that we get this from 1 Samuel 6, 13 through chapter 7, verse 2. So we see first the ark returns to Israel from verses 13 through 18. We see the Israelites of Beth Shemesh rejoice to see the ark. As we see in verse 13, it says, Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. Next, we see the Israelites of Beth Shemesh make an offering to the Lord. As verse 14 says, The cart came into the field of, Beth, of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. Interestingly, we see that Beth Shemesh was a Levitical city. As we see, the, Levi, the Levites are um, within it, and we see that ultimately they're the ones that take down the Ark of the Lord. As verse 15 says, And the Levites took down the Ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which there were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And then as Joshua 21, 16 says, Ain with his pasturelands, Judah with its pasturelands, and Beth Shemesh with his pasturelands. Just uh, reiterating that this was a Levitical city. We see the Philistines experience all that went down with the ark that day. As 1 Samuel 6, 16 says, And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. So interestingly enough, we see that the Philistines see all that happened, they see the work of God, His greatness on display, and we see that their test ultimately uh, would infer that it was God who was at work. And certainly we're not given their response, but as we can see from other parts of the Scriptures, we see that they ultimately do not turn to God here. And then we get the offering of the Philistines. 1 Samuel 6, 17-18, it says, These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron, and the golden mice according to the number of the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And then we get the surprising and even climatic event in the next verse. We see the Lord kills men for looking at the ark. 1 Samuel 6, 19. And he struck, he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh, because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. So we see they disobeyed the Lord in looking on the ark of the covenant, and we see even greater, these were Levites, people that should have known the ways of God, and we see that they ultimately disobeyed the Lord by looking on the Ark of the Covenant. So he strikes 70 of the men dead. So we get the response of the Israelites. 1 Samuel 6, 19. We see the people mourn for this. As it says, And he struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned, because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. And we see ultimately they decide to get rid of the Ark. As we see in 1 Samuel 6, 20 through chapter 7, verse 2, it says, then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? 
and to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned to the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the, up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son, Eleazar, to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord." So as we think about the situation the Israelites are in, as we think about their response, the response is very interesting. As we see, it's exactly like the Philistines. This whole situation reminds us of this, the pagan Philistines' ark encounter that we have just seen as they receive the ark and do not treat it, or the God it represents with due fear or respect. So God inflicts them, and they seek to send it off. Israel has done the very same thing. The very people of God who know his ways do not show proper fear and respect and ultimately want to get rid of the ark. The Israelites act just as the Philistines did, as though this God is not one who, who they can have a relationship to. They question who can serve and stand before this holy God and seek to get rid of the ark and essentially him. The Israelites do not respond to repentance for their past sin or their current sin, but see God as the problem, as too holy for them, and too wrathful that they want nothing to do with him. As we conclude 1 Samuel 5-6, through 6, let us take just a little bit of time to just reflect over some of these truths uh, that we see, especially with God's greatness and with the response of both the Philistines and Israel. So first, we reflect upon the greatness of God in that God manifested his majesty in a new and a wondrous way, in, in a wondrous way. While being captured in the land of the Philistines, God shows that he is sovereign and he's superior to all things, as the Philistines learned with their god Dagon. He is all-powerful and almighty and cannot be constrained by anyone. He is not restricted when his people fail him and act unfaithful. God continues to work even in the lives and the parts of the world in which do not submit to his authority and have a relationship to him. May this unique story within the scripture bring, us, bring about a great all of God and a fear of his name within us. And then secondly, we reflect on the responses of the Philistines and the Israelites. And as we see, they're two different people groups, but we see ultimately they respond in similar ways. We see with the pagans, with the idolatrous unbelievers, the Philistines, they recognize God's greatness through the experience of him manifesting his glory in their land, yet they do not submit and do not fear his name. Rather, they reject him and get rid of him. They re realize his power and acknowledge his majesty, but they will not bow down to him or serve him. And then secondly, on the other hand, we encounter God's people who should know him and who should submit to him they should be turning in reverence to him and humbly serving him, yet we see they too reject his presence, believing he is too holy and wrathful for them. They lose sight of their relationship with him rather than acknowledging that his just actions came from their sin. So we, today, we fit into these two categories. Either you are someone who has no relationship to God or you do. And we've been confronted with the greatness and the magnificence of God. So the question lies before us, will you fear 
and humbly serve the Lord. Let us close in prayer. Lord, I just thank you for the opportunity we have to look at the scriptures, for the story before us, um, a unique uh, and amazing story of your greatness on display. And Lord, I just, I pray, Lord, for our response uh, to such a story. Um, Lord, you show this greatness, this magnificence in our lives even today and in the world around us. And God, I pray that our lives would uh, have a fear and have a all of your name, God. I pray that in everything that we do, everything that we speak, and everything that we think, that it would reflect this fear, this humble service to your name, God. I pray that we would certainly bow in submission to you, and Lord, I pray that our life would reflect one who is following your commandments, who is seeking to serve and to obey you. Lord, we thank you for the great God that you are and for being superior over all things, for being the one true God. Lord, we thank you for all things, and in your name I pray. Amen.